probably four or five weeks on verses 11 through 12. Uh, we're in verse 13 here tonight. We'll probably cover uh, at least a couple of verses. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, uh, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord God, thank you for this evening that you've given us, and Lord, thank you for the book. Uh, Lord, thank you for hope, and thank you for answering prayers. And Lord, I pray you be with our church family here tonight. Uh, God, the requests that have been given and the requests that will be made. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you just open up this book to us, God, and, and uh, Lord, reveal what it is that you'd have us to know. These things we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, you know, one of the great failures in Bible study, and you've heard me say this a number of times, is to assume that everything that's in there is written, and, uh, is written about you. And uh, so I'll read this again. It says, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Now, it'd be real easy for somebody to read that and say, Okay, you know, he's talking about Christians. You know, they die in the Lord. But notice that he says, from henceforth. That means from here on, from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And here's where you can definitely see the difference between you as a Christian and somebody else. It says, and their works do follow them. That's not you, right? Your works do not follow you. Your works go before you. Uh, so you want to notice that very carefully. Uh, so who's this talking about? Well, uh, we're in the book of Revelation and where we've been. Uh, you ought to know that what we're talking about here are those who die in the tribulation. Right? They have their works follow them, and they're judged for these works later. Okay? They're judged later. So even though they die in the tribulation, their judgment happens after they die. Your works go before you, and they, you meet them at the judgment. Right? So your works are already there, and then you get judged when you meet them. Uh, they die, and their works follow them, meaning that the judgment happens, their judgment happens after they die, right? It's a, they, the tribulation saints, because of where things fall, they're not judged at the judgment seat of Christ. They're judged at the great white throne seat judgment. That doesn't take place uh, until a thousand years later. It's at the end of the millennium. That's when you get a new heavens and a new earth. And then, of course, the old heavens and the old earth are, are passed away. And uh, as the Lord before he starts in creating that new heavens and the new earth, there's a great white throne seat judgment. Uh, you can see that real easily because where uh, that great white throne seat judgment takes place, it says, you know, uh, heaven and earth are, are rolled away. They're standing out on nothing, right? There's, there's nothing there. And uh, so that judgment takes place. And so conceivably, all right, or, or, you know, mathematically, I guess, if you want to put it that way, chronologically is probably a better term, is that folks that die in the tribulation, uh, if you want to call them Christians, they're not church age, but tr the better term is tribulation saints. The tribulation saints who die in the tribulation will go another thousand years before they're judged. That makes sense. Okay? So it says their works do follow them. Okay? Your situation in the church age is entirely different. Uh, your works go ahead of you and you meet your works at the judgment seat of Christ. And when the judgment seat of Christ is over, your judgment will be passed as a Christian. These saints in the tribulation, they 
have to get judged sometime in the future, which we've already kind of addressed. And since the judgment seat of Christ has already taken place, it takes place during the tribulation, uh, it's apparent that the saints who are saved in the tribulation aren't judged the same way that you are judged or that anybody in the church age is judged. Uh, they're not judged at the same judgment. Uh, they're not judged at the same time or the same place as those in the church age. Tribulation saints are judged at the great white throne judgment. Go, if you will, uh, back over to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. And you'll see verse 18. Okay, and then you'll know that this is not the same kind of judgment that you're judged at. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, it says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come in thy time of the, uh, of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Okay? All right, so from there, going on to Revelation 14, 14. Revelation 14, 14. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. All right, so the reference uh, is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's uh, the Lord Jesus represented here as the angel of the Lord. Uh, and that can be, you know, you'll see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it's an angel, uh, referred to as the angel of the Lord. It's just an angel. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Uh, I can give you two offhand uh, angel of the Lord, Old Testament, Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. One of them uh, is with Moses. Uh, Moses, whenever he turned to see the, the bush, he's talking to the angel of the Lord, and you'll notice that whenever he comes, he says, uh, take off thy shoes from you know, where you are. The ground on which you stand is holy ground. And Moses gets down, and he gets down on his face when he finds out who he's talking to. That's a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Right? Happens again with Joshua. Uh, Joshua goes, and he sees a man on a hillside, and he pulls out his sword, and uh, says something to the effect, are you with us or with your, are you with our enemies? And uh, the angel says, no, nay, <laughs> but as captain of the Lord of hosts, and then, of course, he hits the dirt and tells Joshua the same thing, take off your shoes, place wherein you stand is holy ground. You'll see that similitude. There'll be several times where it's an angel of the Lord and people don't react that way. They don't hit the dirt. You, you see somebody meet the angel of the Lord and they hit the dirt and can't get up and the angel doesn't tell them to get up, chances are that's the Lord Jesus Christ that you're dealing with there. Other times it's just an angel. So I know that that can be kind of a confusing thing at times. But anyway, this is uh, Jesus Christ here being referred to as the angel of the Lord. All right. Uh, let me get back to my spot. But uh, the statement is, is not just the Son of Man, but one sat like unto the Son of Man. Go back over to Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And you'll see him described here, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Okay, if I come back over to 14, 14, 
It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat uh, uh, one sat like unto the Son of Man. So I'll come back over here to 10.1. Clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. All right, this is uh, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the tribulation uh, sometime before the, uh, the actual advent. So before he, it's a, well, uh, it's an appearance, but it's before his advent uh, or his landing on the earth. When he actually comes down and sets foot on the earth, uh, he comes back on horseback with an army. You can see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Revelation chapter 19 uh, is a great showing of the Lord Jesus Christ whenever he physically comes back. I mean, he puts a foot on the Mount of Olives, and I believe if we go over to Joel chapter 2, you'll see what happens. Uh, you got a companion passage over in Joel chapter 2. I know I've got you kind of flipping all over the place here. Hosea, Joel, Amos. There we go, Joel chapter 2. Uh, now I've got written, my note next off, uh, off to the side of Joel chapter 2 is the battle details at the second advent. Uh, another word for it would be Armageddon. Okay. And if we look at Joel chapter 2, you can start from verse 1, and we'll go down to about verse 11. The whole thing is good, but uh, this is the second advent passage here. So second advent is Jesus Christ physically setting foot on earth again. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Uh, and that phrase, the day of the Lord, that's a second advent reference. Whenever the Lord reference, he'll say that day or the day of the Lord or in that day. He's talking about his second advent. He's talking about coming back. All right, verse 2, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Where, how did you see him clothed? He was clothed in clouds. Now, I don't know. Uh, it, it brings to me kind of a meteorological question, which is, are there clouds all around the world, or are there just clouds where he comes back? I don't know. Um, the world may be at such a state that as far as uh, North and South America goes, there may not be anybody living on North and South America by this point in the tribulation. I mean, everybody who's living may be on the other, you know, the eastern continent or whatever. They may all be over there. Uh, I don't know. It, uh, when you're talking about the tribulation and the events that happen in the tribulation, uh, it is so cataclysmic, the events that have occurred in that time period, that, uh, that if you were to, you know, uh, actually see it, it wouldn't look anything like the world that you're in. I, I think you're starting to see some things lead up to and get ready for, but I still, I mean, it's going to be uh, so dramatically different than the way things are right now. I, it would be hardly recognizable. So if it comes down to that, like, there, there's not really very much that uh, I would take off the table. So, you know, like, that's awfully extreme to say nobody's going to be in North or South America. 
Uh, I don't know. I, that may seem like an extreme statement. It may not be all that extreme by the time you look at everything. Uh, let me keep going here. Uh, let's see. A day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. Uh, there hath not uh, been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, uh, even to the years of many generations. Uh, a fire devoureth before them and behind them. A flame burneth. Now, think about that for a second. The Lord Jesus Christ is physically returning, and he's coming back through the atmosphere. Uh, that would have been something that would have been hard for somebody to understand 100 years ago, right? But you understand that pretty well. Why? Why would there be fire going before and after somebody coming back through the atmosphere? Well, you've seen things, re you know, you've seen things re-enter the atmosphere, and you know what happens. That stuff gets hot, <laughs> And so you can imagine the fire coming up off of the, off of the hooves of those horses. I mean, they're just re-entering the atmosphere. I mean, you look like a, uh, like a meteor. Uh, and that's, that's an, but that's not just one horse. That's not just one guy. That's an army coming down. And uh, there's fire coming before them and after them. Uh, it would be quite a sight. Fire devoureth before them and behind them. A flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horsen, horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Uh, I don't you know, know what your feelings are about horses, but uh, one of these days you're going to be riding one. And I heard somebody put it this way, and I don't know if there's, if there's much to it. I, I like the sound of it, but... Uh, Somebody put it this way, he said, the horse that you come back on would make a Shetland pony, or sorry, would make a Clydesdale look like a Shetland pony. That was a big horse. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know, horses kind of always made me nervous, but I imagine that I'll have to get over it. And uh, somebody, you know, made the point, too, is that uh, you look at just Christian service and that kind of thing, and you wonder there won't be some people that didn't do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they're going to spend the millennium uh, shoveling up that horse manure. All right, but, um, and that, that'd be more than enough for me to want to get to work, but uh, let's see, verse number four, the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall I run, like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains. You know, there's some facts that the Bible has that uh, somebody probably, you know, 200, 300, 400 years ago read that, and like, oh man, I know exactly what that sounds like. You know what? We've lost some things, right? Uh, I don't know, how many of you know what the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains sounds like? You know, there's, so there's some real Bible truth that you missed with all your advancements. All right, like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, so shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. That's you, and you're going to be there. You know, that's, you know, one of those things is that... Uh, uh, I, I, I like science fiction-y type things, and I like movies about spaceships and all that kind of stuff. And uh, if you didn't have a Bible, you'd kind of be upset that you weren't going to live long enough to get to see, you know, spaceships and all that kind of stuff. But you know what I appreciate about the Bible is the Bible tells me about great and wonderful and amazing things. And just being saved and being in Jesus Christ means I'm going to get to see all this. I'm going to be there. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't know, it kind of, it kind of you know, just flips my brain that uh, because John, you know, Joel is writing this, you know, some of the stuff that we're reading about in Revelation, John was in the third heaven when he wrote it. 
and he's going to write about things happening that you're going to experience. There's part of me that wonders that if I just looked over in the midst and in that moment, because there's going to be a moment when you're there. And I don't know if you'll remember this conversation when you're there. Uh, it'd probably be pretty much in the moment, but I wonder about just looking over and seeing Joel writing things down. You know, looking over here and I see John writing things down. I'm like, man, he's, he's writing what I've read about the moment that I'm in. Uh, there's just something interesting about that is the Lord taking somebody and having him write about future events and he literally takes John uh, to the place where those things are happening. All right, uh, let's see, let me keep going here. Uh, verse 6, before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. Uh, that's the people on the other side of your sword. Uh, whenever they see the Lord Jesus Christ and they see you falling behind them, there's no hope. It's it. It's over. They've gathered themselves together in array, and man, uh, you talk about a, you know, a Christian army there, and they don't break ranks, and there's nothing that they budge for. Ten horses per chariot. Oh, ten people in a chariot. Yeah, I don't, it, it talks about, it says like the noise of chariots, but it doesn't directly mention uh, the chariots themselves. So there's a sound of chariots. I don't know if there's chariots or not, or if, there's, if it's just people on horseback. I, I don't know. But uh, notice verse 7, it says, they shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone on his ways. They shall not break their ranks. Um, I don't know, by the sounds of that, maybe not everybody does come back on horse. I don't know. Um, I, it could be like any other, uh, you know, battle that you would see take place where, you know, listen, not everybody's in tanks, not everybody's in planes. You've got some guys on foot, some guys are in tanks, some guys are in, you know, uh, whatever, mili different military types of things. But, so it looks like you've got some people on foot. It looks like you've got some people in horses. You might have some people in chariots. I don't know. Um, but notice this. It says that they, uh, and they shall not break their ranks, meaning that there's, not a, there's, there's nothing that the Antichrist and his army can do that, uh, that affects that military, that the Lord Jesus Christ and his army, you at all. I mean, they're, it, it doesn't matter if they had catapults throwing boulders, they would break off of you, and you'd, just still, you'd still be standing. Think about what a demoralizing sight that would be. I mean, you, you come in there, and you've got the two forces meeting, and you've got the forces of Jesus Christ are marching forward, and you've got the forces of the Antichrist on the other side, and they've got whatever tanks that they can get together, they've got all their missiles, they've got all their ICBMs, I mean, they're, they're volleying rockets, and, then it, you know, whether or not the Antichrist is standing at the beginning and he gives the order, fire everything. I mean, they're firing everything. Just rockets, guns, grenades, whatever. I mean, just all of it. I, I mean, listen, as far as all this is concerned, they probably still have some nukes. I mean, they've they're got, the, they got the planes going over, and they're dropping nukes. And all of this dust and cloud and all of this stuff has taken place. And they're looking, oh, man, did we win? Did we get them? Did we wipe them out? And you know what they see as the dust clears? That army 
still marching forward. Didn't lose one guy. There's not like one guy off over on the ground, you know, holding himself. I mean, doesn't affect him at all when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, didn't even, didn't do a thing. Didn't scratch him. I mean, they're, they're, they're still a pearly white. They didn't even take the gleam off the sword. As far as like the locusts and things like that? Yeah, um, but I'm trying to think if really the, the locusts, the, those things that come up, they don't attack uh, the tribulation saints. They attack the Antichrist saints for that period of time. So in terms of being under the authority of the Antichrist, it really doesn't appear so. Because it's, it's, the, it's the people who took the mark of the beast that are tormented for that period of time. So I wouldn't think that in the Battle of Armageddon that, you know, they've got these locusts, you know, on their side. It doesn't seem to be that way. And granted, I don't know what kind of military force the Antichrist will even have. You know, by the time you've got global disarmament, but it could be that he's got all the stockpile and say, hey, here it is. We're going to use whatever we've got against him. And we're going to lob all the... Now, what he will have um, is he'll have the, the fallen angels. He'll have all of those fallen angels that have been, I would say, portraying themselves as superheroes for those three and a half to seven years or whatever it is. And so, you know, whatever kind of supernatural ability those guys have. But again, it, notice it says there, it says, and they shall not break their ranks. Which means nobody's falling back. Nobody, there is no retreat for the forces of the Lord Jesus Christ. They keep marching forward. There's nothing that phases them. Uh, verse 8, neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path, and when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. I've got that underlined. That's one of my favorite. Uh, that's quite a sight. That's, that's quite a scene. You come up, I mean, you're going to be there. I mean, if you're saved, you're going to be there. And uh, you come up to one of these antichrist, you know, fellows. He's probably got blue hair or whatever. He's, you know, he doesn't know how he identifies, so it might be hard to figure it out. But, uh, you know, he's, he's got a, you know, he's got a, oh, I'm trying to think of the knife on the end of the gun there, whatever. He's got, he's got a bayonet, and he comes up to you, and you get, I mean, you just get right there. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got your, you got your sword there. And he said, but you know what, uh, I, listen, man, I'm going to give you a free shot. Go ahead. You know, I won't block it. I won't do anything, right? You're like a big brother talking to a little brother. Go ahead and hit me. I won't even block it, you know, just that kind of thing. And he comes up with his bayonet or she or whatever it is. I mean, and just gets you right in the gut. I mean, right there. You're like, you want to give it another shot? You want to go again? Right? Try it two or three times. You know? You know what, you take that thing out, I mean, and just, just take the head off. That, you know, look at what it says. When they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. Now, I've got a theory about why that is, and that's because when you got raptured, you left your blood here. You ain't bleeding out. So, uh, you've got a perfect body. That perfect body, it doesn't take damage. So, they can try everything that they want to. You've got a perfect, glorified body it's not, not affected by any of this stuff at all. Verse 9, they shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the wall. 
that's that's quite a sight. I don't I don't know. I, don't, I can't even eat, take somebody from Hollywood to draw you up a scene like that. They shall climb uh, up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. I mean, they're just there's nowhere that you can't you can't get away from them. That's the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I say they. I mean you. You're there. You're part of this. I don't know where you fit into it precisely, but you're there. All right? The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now, that could be a couple of different things. That could be the, the lights in the night sky. Or that could be a reference to the fallen angels. That, that you know, that they withdraw their shining. Uh, I don't know. They, they may withdraw from the battle. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word. Meaning whenever the Lord gives a command, you follow. And that's where the strength is. Um, you'll, you'll notice that whenever the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, uh, it says, out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword. Well, that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you are told over in Ephesians chapter 6 to take uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So if you were to ask me, are you gonna, am I going to have a literal sword that I'm going to pull out and I'm going to cut people with? Um, I would say maybe not. I would say that the defeating of the Antichrist army is done with words. And when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, that's, that's what causes them to melt. I mean, they just blood. Up to the horse's bridle is what it says. And it may be the same thing. Notice, uh, I'll say it again during verse 11. For he is strong that executeth his word. It may very well be that in this battle, you're not swinging anything. You're going into a place and you're speaking the words of God. And when you speak those words, enemy is defeated. They can go out, you know, they're trying to cut you with sword and, you know, whatever guns or, or whatever, you know, nukes or whatever it is that they've got. And you go into a place and speak the word of God and poof, gone. Ash and blood, that's all that's left. That'd be quite a sight. It says, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Nobody there will. They won't abide it. So it's, it's quite a sight as you read through Joel chapter 2, uh, especially verses 1 through 11. And that army of horsemen stops their charge at the, at the Mount of Olives, and Christ gets off his horse, stands on the ground, and the earth splits under him, and then he gets back on his white Arabian steed and marches through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. You say, where's all that at? Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Again, this is a longer passage, but, man, this is, this is the good stuff, right? If you want to know, you know, I, I know how the song goes. It's, I've read the back of the book and we win, but <laughs> the end is as much in Joel and Zechariah as it is in the book of Revelation, right? So some of it's in the middle of the book, all right? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord, there it is again, cometh. Uh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and a city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, 
and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So there's at least a couple of things to see. It says, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. That's another thing that gives me the indication that uh, Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and all of South America, they're in the Middle East. That there's at least a strong chance that something has happened and everybody's pretty well moved. Whatever it may be. Maybe nuclear fallout. Who knows what it was? Go ahead. Yeah, it, it could be, and it could just, yeah, it could be a gathering of resources, but whatever has happened, uh, the world has been put in such a place that it's no big, what the, he says, for I will gather all nations. So the Lord has gathered them. Now, he can gather them through circumstances, which is probably what he's done through the tribulation, is that the only drinkable water, the only livable locations are where everybody can be gathered together. So whenever the final battle takes place, there's not like, well, you know, we got a bunch of guys over in Indiana, you know, but they, we, didn't, we didn't get them over here. No, he says, I'm going to gather all nations against Jerusalem. All right, verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Uh, that's a great reference to, as you go through, oh, the, uh, the book of Joshua, First and Second Kings, you know, you get into Chronicles and some of those places, uh, Numbers, uh, where the Lord literally fought. Um, David, I think, I believe it's David, where he, uh, he's told at one point just to wait underneath the mulberry trees. And he says he, it, they heard in the tops of the mulberry trees as, as it was, I want to say, as horses going forth to battle. I mean, it was like, like what you're reading, like what you already read over in Joel, is happening over their head, and by the time they get out to go and fight, everybody's already dead. The battle had already been won. And that's, what, that's how the Lord expected things to go in terms of cleaning out uh, the land of Canaan, is I will go and I will fight the battles. And that's what you see is that the nation of Israel really missed in the Old Testament, is that the desire of the Lord was, I will be your God, you don't need a king, I'll be your king, and I will fight your battles. If Israel ever could have got to a place where they were wholly and completely dependent upon God, they never would have had any problems. I mean, it, in as much a way as I can say it, but they never experienced that completely because they were always dependent, they were always hoping to be like the other nations. That's how they end up with Saul. But what the Lord's desire was, if you'll just trust me, I'll fight the battles. And they always got the thing messed up. They'd get to a point where the Lord fought a bunch of their battles whenever they had the ark out there, and then they begin to think it was the ark that was doing the fighting. And if we just get the ark out there, right, that's our weapon of mass destruction. Well, what they didn't realize it had nothing to do with the box. It had to do with the God of the box. And they lost sight of that, and guess what? Whenever they lost sight of that, they lost the box. And uh, so anyway, the Lord gathers all of them together, and he goes out to fight like he used to fight. Uh, verse 4, it says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, 
and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. That's quite a deal right there. He steps on the top of that mountain, the thing splits in two, and there's a valley that's between it. I mean, he leaves a mark on the ground that uh, they'll be able to see for the next thousand years. Now, why he does that, why it splits and all of that kind of stuff, I don't know that I've got a good answer. I'm sure somebody's got it. It says, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, uh, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. That's you. There you are in the Old Testament, the saints. Okay? And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Uh, one of the things you can probably uh, make a note of there is that Jesus Christ is the light. <laughs> um, whenever you start to you get to the end, uh, over there in Revelation chapter 22, and you see a uh, new Jerusalem come down out of heaven, one of the things that you'll notice is that there's no night there. There's still a sun, but there's no night, and the reason why is because Jesus Christ is the light of it, and he's there, and while he's there, there's, the, there's no night. He's the light. All right? So at evening, when this happens, it says, it shall be light. Well, you can guarantee that because that's where the Lord Jesus Christ is. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, and half of them towards the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. Shall there be one Lord and his name one. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Reman, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel, uh, unto the king's wine presses. And uh, men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter darkness, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. How do you know you're not in the tribulation now? <laughs> How do you know it's not all over? Well, let me ask you this. Is Jerusalem safely inhabited? That's quite a promise there, if you know anything about the history of Jerusalem. All right. Uh, and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Uh, I don't know. It, um, there's some stuff that makes me think that George Lucas, maybe not, be, maybe not a Christian, but has probably read the Bible. Uh, one of them is the scene in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when they finally open up the ark at the end of the movie. That, that was, to me, was proof that, you know, like, Indiana Jones was the most pointless character in that entire movie, right? The whole movie, the Nazis are trying to get the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what? They get the Ark of the Covenant. And he's trying to stop them. He didn't stop them from doing nothing. He's supposed to stop them from opening the thing. He didn't stop them from opening the thing. <laughs> the Indiana Jones did squat. And uh, what you see at the end of that movie is exactly what the Lord described there in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. Zechariah 14, 12. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, and then you get, it, you get it over into the Star Wars movies, and they have the moon of Endor. Well, the Bible has the witch of Endor. 
So they, he ended up with a whole bunch of names. You know, of course, he names his major character Luke. And it was like, this guy's just ripping the Bible off. But anyway, all right, verse 13, And it shall come to pass in that, diet, in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. Let me go back to, there to verse 12. That's another thing is that, uh, that that's describing in verse 12 the results of what's happening at uh, the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, this the reason that the blood is up to the horse's bridle is that the Lord speaks, and he doesn't have to swing a sword. He, he speaks the word, and they melt. And, you know, all, all that, they're basically, they're liquefied. Uh, and it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on his uh, hand of his neighbors, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. I'll stop for a second. As I looked some stuff up on the Valley of Megiddo, and there was one of these guys that had posted this stuff. He's like, okay, well, there's so much blood in the human body, and if you took you know, everybody in the world and put them in one place, and you took all the blood that all those people have, and you, and you poured it out, man, it wouldn't even come close to coming up to the horse's bridle or anything like that. And he's like, man, the, the Bible can't be right here. It's got to be just, you know, poetic or whatever. I was like, well, what this guy's forgetting is that you're not, you're not taking all the blood out, and you've got this body and you've got all this blood. Like, it's more than just whatever, what is it? I'm trying to remember how many quarts of blood are in the human body. Is it six quarts or something like that, or pints? I don't know what it, Barb, do you know how much blood is in the human body? All right. I'm going to go with six, uh, just because that's the number of a man, and the Lord works those things out. But well, by the time, you notice that everything he said here is that he's liquefying the eyes, right? It's not just, you know, he's doing more. There's more liquid there than just blood. Yes, sir? Is there going to be the giants? Will they be there, too? I don't know. Uh, potentially, uh, just because as in the days of Sodom and as in the days of Lot, I want to say also as in the days of Noah. Um, so there might be some, but I already mentioned the fallen angels, and so there'd probably be some offspring from those and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, there'd be a lot of blood there from some fallen angels or, or some giants or whatever. All right, verse, uh, verse 14. Go ahead. Ten, and it's only 8% of your body weight. So if you'd imagine liquefying an entire body, you're going to wind up with a whole lot more liquid than just what was considered for blood. And so that's where I was like, I don't, this guy's not, not read all his Bible all the way through. All right, and they shall lay, uh, let me get back to this verse 14, and Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, uh, of the mule, of the camel, of the ass, of all the beasts, uh, that shall be in these tents as this plague. And there's another great point is that it won't just be people that are there. You're going to have a whole bunch of animals there. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, uh, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, there's some things that I would, you know, if I was going to ask questions, I'd ask about verse 16. It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. I don't know who all that is. I don't know if it's people that, you know, um, if you took the mark of the beast, you're damned, right? That's, that's it, you're done. You've got enough scripture on that. Uh, and so who, who these people are here that are left 
Um, I don't know what they're made up of. I don't know if they're made up of tribulation saints that hadn't been executed. Uh, I don't know if they're made up of people that were, say, antichrist sympathizers but didn't take the mark. I don't know. I don't know. They, I don't know. That's, that's my best answer if you're asking about who's left and you know, what factions are there and how does this thing go forward from this point. I don't have all the answers to that. Somebody probably does. Verse 17, and it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So there's, we're, we're talking about out into the millennium here. And so there's very real consequences for not coming and worshiping the, the king. Keep in mind that if we go back over to Revelation and, and read, uh, we know that uh, Satan has been bound for a thousand years. All right, well, Satan now is the, the king of this world, the God of this world is what the Bible describes. So he's no longer the God of this world. So Jesus Christ has taken the world back over and like he's always had control over, but that one of the things is the weather, but it's direct. It's, it's a direct control over the weather. And if you want rain for your crops, you better go in and worship the king. Now, that's, we're not talking about you here. We're talking about those people. Right? You're not part of that faction anymore. So as much as you might be used to farming, like you're not in that group anymore. Okay. Now, you say, well, that seems awfully harsh. No, hold on for a second. Um, I'm trying to think of where the, I can't think of where the passage is uh, right off the top of my head. But when it starts talking about what farming is like in the millennium for the people that go and worship the Lord, it says, it starts talking about um, that the crop comes right up after the planting. I mean, can you imagine you're running the, running the planter down the field, and by the time you get to the end of the row, right, you got a crop that somebody's got to come behind and harvest. And you come in and harvest, and the guy coming behind the harvest, you know, he's plowing the thing back up, and right behind the plow is the planter. And right behind the planter is the combine. <laughs> would, I would say that's some pretty good rain. <laughs> It'd probably be worth going and visiting the king and, and worshiping him. I wouldn't miss out on that too much. So, you know, talk, but Monsanto ain't got nothing on that. You know, they know Roundup, no Monsanto, they no Fertile. Sorry, Helena's out of business. <laughs> Lord's got something figured out here. Put them, put the, there's, there's no weeds, none of it. And the Lord just takes care of it. And I think in one place how he refers to it as the, uh, the former and the latter rain happening together. And so, in terms of waiting for seasons and months and those kinds of things for growing seasons, he said, no, that's all done away with. He said, there, there's no shortage. He said, if you, you want it, I mean, it goes back to a Garden of Eden setup. And the problem is, you say, well, what is that? Well, I don't know. Adam and Eve were pretty quick at messing things up. I don't think they got to enjoy it for very long. So anyway, let me keep going here. Uh, let's see. Uh, it shall come to pass every one that is left of the nation shall come against Jerusalem. I think I've read that. Uh, shall go up from year to year to worship the king of the Lord of hosts and to keep the feast of the tabernacles. Uh, who will not come up out of all the families of the earth under Jerusalem to worship the king of the Lord of hosts? Even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up uh, and come uh, not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So you'll notice some stuff there, you know, will smite the heathen. So evidently there's just some normal people left. 
Um, and there's heathen left. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So that will give you at least some idea that even though the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on earth for a thousand years, that not everybody's for him. Right? There, there's enough people left. And you'll know that this will be the case because at the end of the thousand years, whenever Satan is loosed, He's able to garner a force against Jerusalem that it says is as the sands of the sea. And you can't blame it on Satan because he's not there. No, Sa Satan's, Satan's, Satan's been bound. There is enough wickedness in the heart of man left to himself to rebel against God. And, and mankind, with Jesus Christ literally sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and knowing who he is, there'll be people that said, I want nothing to do with him. And they won't go up. And they'll get bitter. And that bitterness will swell for generations over a thousand years. And there'll be people that when Satan finally comes up, he'll gather them together against Jerusalem. And the amazing thing about it is that I think it's like four or five verses or whatever it is. It's a considerable, you know, at least a little passage there. And the Lord doesn't even take an entire verse to take care of the whole battle of Gog and Magog, right? Like we, you just read Joel chapter 2 from verse 1 through 11. That's the battle of Armageddon. You've read... You know, the better half of Zechariah 14, there's the battle of Armageddon. The Lord doesn't pull any punches when it comes to the, the battle of Gog and Magog, which is the last battle. He says, and he called fire down from heaven and consumed them. It's like the Lord doesn't even, like, waste his breath. He just, like, he doesn't pull out reinforcements. He, there's no, you know, tactic that he's got to do a bunch. He just calls fire down from heaven. It's like, it's done, you know. You go, you handle it, and then you go get your sweet tea, you know, and it's, it's over with. That's the Lord. Uh, it's amazing to me what the Lord will make a big deal out of and what the Lord will make a little deal out of. You know, he makes little out of things that we would make much. Um, that passage over there in Genesis where he says, and he made the stars also. Like, NASA's been fascinated with that for, you know, a hundred years trying to count the stars in the universe and what's all out there. And the Lord's, I, don't, I created that too. It's not as important as you. All right, let me keep going here. Let's get to the end of this. Um, let's see. Verse 19, uh, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations that come not up to the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be uh, upon the bells of the horses, uh, this, this is written, this is etched on those bells, holiness unto the Lord. And the pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them that see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So I, I would still say that there's a lot there that you could ask about that I, and I don't know. Um, I'm still figuring stuff out. You know, like what about this Canaan? You know, what are they making, you know, it says, and all they that sacrifice, you know, what is that? Uh, there's, there's still some questions I have here, but that's the end, right? What you read in Joel chapter 2 and Zechariah 14 is all stuff that pairs right up with what you're reading in Revelation chapter 14, and chapter 20, chapter 22, you know, chapter 21, all of that. And uh, so with that, I'm going to stop right there. Questions or comments? So that's what you got to look forward to, folks. Spent five weeks talking about hell, and there you go. 